and we're grateful that um, you are here uh, regardless of how prepared I am. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Matt. You did great. Just, you know. <laughs> good job. Hey, good morning, everybody. Good to see everybody. Uh, who here likes weddings? Really? Okay. That's a lot of you. Uh, you know, I, I, you done? <laughs> okay. Got good to him. You didn't want to leave. Uh, you know, I, oh, I've, I've, I've passed wedding duties on to the other people uh, that are on staff who are licensed to minister here. Licensed to minister. Uh, but uh, I've done a lot of weddings uh, over the course of 28 years. The very first wedding that I ever did, uh, I was out at McKenzie Park. And what are those things they put back? A trellis? It's a trellis kind of thing that they, you know, that I was supposed to stand underneath. Well, a gust of wind came by. They didn't have the thing secured. And it bumped me right on the head. I mean, like badly. Like I almost fell over. It's like one of those, you know, repeat after me. Ow! Uh, but you know, I've told I've, I've told couples before that you know if something goes sideways on the wedding. Don't let it throw you on the ceremony or anything like that because that's kind of the stuff that makes it memorable. There was one time we were in the middle of you know, the bride was coming down the aisle. And the groom leaned over and said, can we stop this? And I was like, dude, we were meeting about this beforehand. This is not the time. He said, I know my dad's not here yet. He said, I thought he was here, but he's not. And so, believe it or not, I stopped the bride. I said, go back. (laughs) And I had to stand there for like 10 minutes making jokes and, you know, trying to keep everybody. It was the only wedding that I've ever been to where everybody was more anxious to see the father of the groom than to see the bride herself. But... I told him, you know, that's what makes it memorable. Things go crazy. Things go, you know, a little wonky from your expectations. But it's all right. That's the thing that, that sometimes becomes the shining moment of the, of the whole procedure. We're going to be reading about a wedding this morning in our text today where things go sideways. There's a, a crisis that ends up being something that reveals glory, that ends up being... Uh, so wonderful and full of grace, and it is infused with so much meaning. Uh, if you've got a Bible with you today, we're going to continue our study in the Gospel of John. If you want to go to chapter 2, please. We finally got past chapter 1, John's introduction to his Gospel. Last week we read about Jesus gathering his first four disciples, and we considered what it means to follow Jesus, especially for us as 21st century Americans. What does it mean to follow after him? Uh, so if, if remembering the structure of John's gospel, I, I was going to put that up on a slide for you, and I forgot. Uh, if you got a bulletin, I think it is it still on the bulletin, on the back of the bulletin? So there's a structure there on the back of your bulletin for John. We're now entering the first part of the the story, which has traditionally been called... Uh, the book of signs. It's broken down that way. Chapters 2 through 12 takes us through the book of signs. John carefully structures his stories in his gospel around the institutions and the festivals of Judaism, all for the purpose of revealing Jesus' mission and the messianic, uh, the, the messianic purpose of, of replacement and abundance that's represented through all of his ministry. And that's going to be thematic through the next few chapters that we're going to be reading. 
uh, a new wine in place of water, a new temple, a new birth, a new source of living water, a new approach to worship. All of these things are part and parts of what it is that John is trying to communicate to us about Jesus. All of these things of replacing the old and overthrowing our ideas of status quo in the process. So today we're going to be reading about Jesus' first miracle, changing water into wine, and we're going to examine this sign as John calls it. And and we'll see what we can learn about Jesus and God's intent. So if you're there in John chapter 2, we're going to begin with verse 1. And because of the nature of this story, I'm going to read the whole thing through, and then we're going to go back through and examine elements of it as we go. So it says in verse 1, the next day, and unfortunately we're going to have to stop right there for a minute, (laughs) because the NLT and the NIV and several of the modern translations put the next day in there, in the Greek, it's actually the third day. And, and that, to me, seems important, especially we'll get to why that's important. But there's, there's something that John's trying to communicate. The, the people that, that do the Bible translations are extremely smart. They're, they're not dummies at all. I'm not exactly sure. I don't understand the process. They had to have something in mind here. It's just that I'm not sure I agree with it. or it, I'm going to say it's not helpful to me in teaching this today. So just know that in the Greek, it says the third day. We'll get to that. There, there was a wedding celebration in the village of Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. The wine supply ran out during the festivities. So Jesus' mother told him they have no more wine. Dear woman, that's not our problem, Jesus replied. My, and it, NLT says time, it really should be our. And again, it's just one of those things that I don't understand that because our, do a word search through the Gospel of John with the word our. You'll be fascinated to see what comes up in all of that. So this is important. My hour has not yet come, verse 5, but his mother told the servants, do whatever he tells you. Standing nearby were six stone water jars used for Jewish ceremonial washing. Each could hold 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus told the servants, fill the jars with water. When the jars had been filled, he said, now dip some out and take it to the master of ceremonies. So the servants followed his instructions. When the master of ceremonies tasted the water that was now wine, not knowing where it had come from, John breaks the fourth wall, but, you know, of course, the servants knew, he called the bridegroom over. A host always serves his best wine first, he said. Then, when everyone's had a lot to drink, he brings out the less expensive wine. But you've kept the best until now. This miraculous sign at Cana in Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After the wedding, he went to Capernaum for a few days with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples. Interesting, his brothers. Okay, so our story opens at at a wedding feast in Cana, where Jesus and his mom and his new followers are all in attendance. Now, Cana was a small town near Nazareth, not much bigger than Nazareth. In fact, it's kind of difficult to locate uh, at this time uh, in our modern world. But it was small enough, we believe, that most of the village probably would have been present there at this at this feast. Uh, wedding feasts in the first century... They were a big deal. We normally break our weddings down into two stages. We've got the the wedding ceremony, and then after that, the reception. You know, where everybody's looking around. Is the pastor gone yet? You know, so it's uh, uh, so we have a little party for the day, and then it's done. 
In the first century Israel, there was a big deal. Wedding feasts, like that's described here, could last up to seven days. And it's possible to infer from the text that Jesus and his followers were were like sort of last-minute guests here, the also-invited ones. Uh, his mother may have been friends with the family. Maybe she was part of the planning committee. She seems to know a lot of what's happening with the supplies. And maybe it's because Jesus and his crew were there, so it added more people to the party than they expected. Or maybe it was just a simple miscalculation. Or maybe just due to the poverty of that area. We can only speculate on the reason, but a a situation arises where the wine runs out at this party. Now again, for us 21st century Americans, we're like, oh, that's a shame, but just send everybody home, it's cool. But to really understand the impact of this, we have to understand that the rules of hospitality were taken very seriously for the people of that culture in that time. To run out of wine or food at a feast like this would have been more than just a little faux pas or a slight embarrassment in that. It wasn't just inconvenient. This was a social disaster for them. This was going to be a source of shame for this family. The family would have to live with that for a long time to come. In fact, the bride and groom might have even seen it as a portent of bad luck on their their marriage because that type of thinking was certainly standard in that context. So Mary comes to Jesus seeking his help in this matter, but... Uh, she doesn't really ask him for his help directly. Instead, she just informs Jesus of the situation because you know how moms are. I mean, <laughs> mom says, your room is a mess. She's not informing a child of something he doesn't know or anything like that. She's saying, you are about to be a mess until you make that room not a mess. But she's a mom. She doesn't have to say all those other words, right? So Mary tells Jesus, she tells Jesus, they're out of wine. She's mom explaining to him that she wants his help in this. Now, people go a lot of different directions in trying to understand and apply this story. Some read it as a lesson of faith, the faith that Mary displays. Others see it as a demonstration of compassion from Jesus trying to head off what could be this terrible social disaster and humiliation for this couple. And those are great ideas. I got no problem with any of those ideas, but John is so purposeful in, in, and strategic with the stories that he tells in this gospel. I think it's really important that he tell us why he put this story in this, why he included this story in his account. And for that, we have to go to the end of the story and work backwards. In verse 11, John explains, This miraculous sign at Cana in Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now, John doesn't call it a miracle. He will never use that term in his whole gospel. He calls it a sign. And John's gospel is arranged around seven signs that he will describe for us. This is the first one. And we'll, we'll highlight those as we go. He begins the counting process for us as we're going through his gospel. This is the first sign. This is the second sign. Then he leaves it up to us to figure it out. You know, you catch on. You number these as we go. And it's all built around that, that distinct seven signs. Anyway... What's the function of a sign? Like, what does a sign do, huh? It points to something. Yeah, like it, it, it reveals, like, okay, so Eastgate, the building that we're meeting in here uh, as a church, it has a sign out front, it has the name on it, Eastgate. If I didn't, if I hadn't been here before, 
didn't know you know where to to meet with this group of people it would be a location that was hidden to me i could put it into to google maps but that would take me to the middle of the hathaway bridge and for all of our efforts we can't get it away from there but so then we'd be looking around like where is it we'd still be it'd still be hidden for us we'd have to look for a building with the sign on it so we could have the location revealed all right so in in a biblical sense a sign is a revelation. It reveals something of God, something that was hidden to us before. John says that this event was a sign that was identifying Christ's glory. And by, by saying that, he's attributing glory to Jesus. It's his way of saying this was not just a mere man. This wasn't just another guy along the way. He's conveying God's glory into the world, something unique here. Now, God's glory, what's that? Like, those are the things we have to puzzle through when we're looking at this. There's words, there's terminology that we get very familiar with, but we really don't even think about what it means. You know, God's glory. Yeah, cool, cool. Well, what's that? Uh, This is glory. Well, it's first mentioned in Exodus 33, where Moses asks to see God's glory. Let me see your glory. And God only partially allows that. God says, okay, you know, you can see... You can see where I've been. He covers him, puts him in the cliff, in the fa- in, a, in a little cleft in the cliff, and covers him up and passes by. And Moses is able to see where his glory has been. And then God describes his glory as his goodness, the, the goodness of my glory. And through the rest of the Hebrew Bible, God's glory becomes synonymous then with his character and his power. And you can... Trace that out through the biblical record, his character and his power. So why is this story here? We could say that the miracle of Cana reveals God's character and purpose in this world. And remember, this is the point of John's gospel. If we want to know what God is like, we're going to look at Jesus. We want to know what God is up to. We're going to look at what Jesus did. So this story is the first sign, the first indicator of God's character and what his rule looks like on earth as it is in heaven. To reveal what God is up to in this earth. Jesus doesn't organize a protest against Roman paganism. He doesn't start a reformed Pharisee organization. No, his first act of power is he empowers a party. And not just in some sort of hedonistic sense or anything like this. This all this all was predicted. This is all what God has been been saying to the Hebrew people all along. We go to Isaiah chapter 25, and he forecast it there, what was going to be happening. On this mountain in Jerusalem, the Lord Almighty will spread a wonderful feast for all the people of the world. It will be a delicious banquet with clear, well-aged wine and choice meat. There he will remove the cloud of gloom, the shadow of death that hangs over the earth. He will swallow up death forever. So there's this double thing going on as the people are eating and swallowing the food. God is swallowing up death. It's a beautiful picture. So the miracle at Cana is a microcosmic picture of what God's kingdom has come to do. The first impression that we get, and this is amazing to me, the first impression that we get of what God's up to through Jesus is a party. <laughs> you know, I mean, there's a qualifier uh, in this story. But when Mary comes to Jesus and, he, and she tells him the dilemma that the hosts are in, he gives her what seems like a dis- dismissive response. You know, what does this have to do with us? Woman, you know, if I'd have said dear woman to my mom, I would have been in need of healing somewhere along the way. But he's saying, you know, my hour isn't here yet. In other words, 
the timing, the timing's not off. This isn't the time for me to reveal my messianic ministry. This also, this is not his party to control. This is not a party he threw. He's been invited. He's an also invited at this party. This is not his party. But Mary seems to, you know, be willing to roll with that, but she doesn't read it as a no. And so she, she leaves it with Jesus by saying to the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. And so he could still tell them nothing. He could still just say, you know, go, get away from me or, or whatever. But the moment that Jesus steps in and he starts giving instructions, the party is now in his hands. And that's meaningful to me because if this is a sign of what God's up to and in our lives and in this world, then we see that God's purpose is to replace our plans and purposes with his. God isn't invading this earth just to help out a little bit in order to prop up the systems that are in place. He is here to take over. This is true for our lives. Ultimately, it'll be true for the whole world, not through political machinations, but through the power of God present in this world. Our resources, you know, you think of it in terms of our own lives, our resources, our wholeness, our joy, those things run out pretty quickly in life. The, the wine dries up. The only way that's going to change is to follow Mary's counsel. Do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he says. We have to give our lives over to Jesus for his instruction. That means we have to discover his values, his priorities, like we're doing here on Sunday mornings as we read through this gospel together. And then we have to yield to them. Not enough just to read it and learn it and see, oh, this is what Jesus was like. The calling on our lives is to yield to that. Allow his ways to shape our lives, to shape the way that we interact with each other, the way we respond to one another, the way we understand this world and our role and place in it. You have to stop demanding an independent existence from God and invite Jesus then to form our values and our priorities as we learn what he's like. This section is rich in symbolism here, and the wine itself is indicative of something of the nature of this life that God has in mind for us. And it echoes back. This isn't an isolated incident. This echoes back to Hosea 2 and Amos 9. I won't bog down reading those, but you can go look those up. Wine is used as a picture of God's abundant restoration for this broken place. Now, because we come from such a culture of excess, uh, Wasteful amounts of time have been spent trying to prove that Jesus, in fact, made non-alcoholic grape juice out of whatever, you know, they had there because, you know, they believe that Christ requires complete abstinence from alcohol to be his follower. But I don't want to offend anybody here, but there is nothing in the translation, in the original language anywhere, to suggest that idea. And anyway, if total abstinence were, were, were Jesus' desire, this would have been a perfect time to explain that. They would have come and said, hey, Jesus, the wine is gone. And he would have said, finally. Finally, it's finally the way I want it to be. Jesus is here. The wine is gone. The party's over. You're welcome. <laughs> but that is not the Jesus of this story. Now, and here's, again, I don't want to be offensive. I, you know, I'm not trying to be flippant. 
about the power of, of alcohol. It has to be handled with care and moderation. You've got to hear my qualification on this. If, if a person is predisposed to continual excess, then total abstinence is the right thing for that person. I, I have great admiration for people who have regained sobriety and their sanity by no longer allowing alcohol or drugs to control and then ruin their lives. And so I encourage that, and I want to support that. That has my full support. I don't want somebody to hear what I just said and said, hey, Jesus made wine out of water, party on God, because that's missing the point as well. According to Psalm 104, God gave wine to drink moderately to make the heart glad, not excessively to make the brain stupid. Some people can't cross that first line without ending up at stupid. But that's not everybody's story. And so we've got to accommodate both sides of this and understand. If, you know, and here's the, 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 the bottom line is, if a person is offended at the thought of a moderate use of alcohol or offended at the idea that Jesus made alcohol because it violates some religious moral code, then, you know, that, I, I don't know what to do there. That just has to be rethought from a biblical perspective, from understanding what it is that the scriptures are actually saying. Because that's the other thing that I observe in this story. Mary tells the servants to do whatever Jesus says. And he sees these water pots nearby, probably near the door. Now, these were stone jars uh, that would be filled with water for people to draw the water out and do the ritual washings that they had to do before meals. You know, you dip it out and you pour three times on this hand, pour three times on this hand, let it run down to the elbows. Now, this is the first institution of Judaism that John puts Jesus in contrast with. The law of Moses does have a few ritual cleansing uh, requirements, but mostly those were for the priests. By Jesus' time, this ritual washing and purification had become somewhat of an obsession. And they washed their hands. I mean, from what we understand, they washed their hands before, during, and after the meals. This is why the water pots are empty, because you've got a big crowd there, and you know everybody's having to, to do this because they believed that's how they remained committed to God. So Jesus looks at those jars, and he says, hey, i got an idea. Let's use those jars, because you know they were empty. People had been using it all the way through there. But Jesus wants to use those jars completely overturning their original use, repurposing them from that point on. Because once they had fermented drink in them, they were no longer going to be used for purification of ritual purposes. So now, instead of being an instrument of outward conformity, they become containers of wine, the symbol of gladness and joy and abundance throughout the entire Bible. So this is the first sign of what God is up to on earth. And I believe we see from this that God comes to replace religious ritual with a new and joyful life. And think about those stone jars. The key, to me, of Jesus' brilliance in this first sign is that he doesn't conjure up magical bottles of wine or, or whatever. He uses the ritual vessels that are already present, but for a new and radical purpose. Rote religion, ritual observance, moral codes, none of those things gladden the heart like a spontaneous celebration of life would. God comes to give us a life that is so rich and satisfied and hopeful and free that it's worth celebrating. 
In reality, too much ritual and, and moralism can poop the party we're supposed to be having. Honestly, there's a theology to the wine here. God's kingdom invades our hearts. It, it brings life from within, which then extends outwardly. He warms our veins and excites our hopes. And that's the kind of life that he intends for us as his followers. Not people conformed to a rote religious response or a, a, a series of obligations. That's what our church gathering on Sundays is supposed to be celebrating. It's not supposed to be a religious obligation so God can check us off the naughty list because we showed up. It's meant to be a participation in God's presence in this earth, celebrating that certain redemption that we have because of Jesus. We're in the midst of redemption. When we gather here, all of these hearts in the midst of this redemption that God's doing with all of us forecasting the good ending that's coming in this, he dwells in the praises of his people. To me, that seems like cause to celebrate. That seems like something that, that should stir our hearts. It's something that I wish translated more into our meeting times as the church. Someone once said that the church has all the language of a party, but we just can't seem to pull it off. And you know, okay, you know, Rob, I got a lot going on in my life right now. I, you know, it's hard to feel very celebratory. And I get that. I'm certainly not trying to put anybody, you know, under obligation. Well, Rob says I'm going to act like I'm happy now and I'm church. This is this, this, not it. I, won't, I don't want anybody to pretend they're happy. But at the same time, let's do our best to remember what this is, that we have a hope that transcends the brokenness of this world, the difficulties and the pains that we're experiencing. There's a creator who loves us and who has promised to work through all of these things for our good, for what's best for us. Even in the midst of hard circumstances, God's presence is within us. Death's power has been destroyed. Our lives have meaning and purpose right now. Everything we experience is not without significance. doesn't mean God planned for us to hurt or be in trouble, but all of it is being worked together by his redemptive power. To me, we've got a reason to celebrate even in the troubles that we face. And this is the new and radical repurposing God does that, that he's intended even for our lives where a joyful life formed by his grace supplants the religious obligations and codes that we so presume we're supposed to adhere to. Think about the sheer volume of wine that Jesus creates in this story. Jesus tells the servants to fill those jars, and he tells us how much those jars can hold. So that comes out to about like 180 gallons of wine filled to the brim. Jesus replaced... 180 gallons of a reminder of our sin with 180 gallons of grace. This is the life that God intends for us. It's boundless, and he transforms everything that we submit to him, transforms it into something that has the potential to reveal his grace. So Jesus has them fill up the jars, tells the servants to take some to the master's ceremonies, who is either like an honored guest there at the party or like the head of the servants or whatever. Either way, we can assume he is somebody who is not going to take the joke well of being given washing water to drink uh, in this. So you think about the servants. 
the Jesus, I love Jesus' detachment in this too. Like he says, yeah, go take some of that. Now you filled it up. Go take some of that to the master's ceremonies. And they're looking at him like, what? <laughs> you can imagine what, like they do it too. So I'm just imagining, they're, you know, shaking their hands. <laughs> you got to take this over to this guy. You can, what's going through their minds and the tension of that as they're watching him lift that bowl up to his mouth and just hoping against hope that everything's okay. And then they see the smile on his face. And he's, you know, exulting and happy. I imagine one of the servants just passes out cold at that point. <laughs> the master of ceremony says, this is unconventional. Normally, you know, you, you bring out the boxed wine at the end of the thing. Everybody's had a lot to drink. Taste buds are dulled. But you've saved the best for last. It's a sign. Jesus is telling us what God is up to in this world, in our lives. And as I read it, it tells me that a life surrendered to God's purposes is the best life there is because it's a life that has its fullness revealed at the last. This is a sign to tell us that Jesus alone is going to give the quality of taste to life that nothing, no one else can. To give life and life abundantly. That's what Jesus does. Where people stumble here, is that they think, you know, I want that, but I sure don't seem to have an abundant life. I look around at the things that I'm going through and the difficulties, but listen, this is where I believe we've been conditioned to taste this world's flavors. The best is found in Christ. What I believe has to happen with us is a radical transformation of our expectations. For too long, I mean for too long, We have allowed this consumer culture to dictate to us what the good life is. We go through so many experiences that we think define our quality of life negatively. Maybe it's health issues or we lose a job or the struggle with addiction or depression. And we start looking up to heaven. God, what are you doing to me in in all of this? Why is this bad stuff happening? And again, we're allowing this broken world to dictate to us our sense of wholeness, of what's good. And look, I don't want to be a downer here or anything, but bad things happen to good people. They just do. The entire scriptural record tells us that. The story of Jesus tells us that. He ended up on a cross at the end of his earthly ministry, and we are his followers. I hate to break it to you, but that's a reality here. And it's not like people outside of our faith are somehow exempt from trouble. The brokenness of this world, it touches everyone. But abundant life means we have a greater hope. A hope that the best life is at the last. John began this story, and this is so important to me. John began this story at this wedding that he says is on the third day in verse 1. And a crisis happens. And the wine runs out. But in the midst of a stone container, something new was formed. New and living, which changed the very meaning of that stone. It's a foreshadow of another third day. With a stone container where one who was dead was raised to life. And it changed the very meaning of that tomb. Changed the very meaning of death. For those who follow after him. 
He saved the best for last. And our lives here are a journey there. This is a countercultural way to think. But this kind of life described in Scripture then is unshackled from the shallow expectations of this broken world. It's a life that is whole and fulfilled by the knowledge that God loves us and He has good planned for us, not just for us, but for this whole planet. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if we had hope in this life alone, we of all people would be the most miserable out there. But he finishes off, we got hope. Baby, we got hope that extends way beyond this world here. Abundant life is eternal life. And the wine is a sign that it's here. It's present. It's in us. Even now at work leading us home. So let's look at the sign in the wine. Let's remember what God's up to on this earth. He's come to take over. He doesn't want a piece or a part. He's come to take it all. He's come so that we'll say, do whatever he says. And this takeover is life-giving. It's not religious drudgery. It's the infusion of something new and alive in us. And his purpose is to give us the best life there is, not dictated by this world, but defined for us by a Savior. So let's taste and see the Lord is good. Let's set our hearts to experience this new life in God. Let's not settle for cheap substitutes. Let's not go chasing after lesser lovers. Let's find our hope in Him, in what He's provided and promised us. Right on? All right, very cool. If you'll stand with me, please. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for these stories that communicate these truths to us. You didn't give us a checklist. You gave us a story. And you invited us to step into it. And as we step into it, suddenly we see things from a whole different perspective. We suddenly see our story making sense in ways we didn't recognize before. Father, I pray for us as a church, as your people gathered here today. I pray that our hearts are open to you, Lord. That we'll that we'll surrender our ways, our expectations, and our hopes to you so that you then can redefine them and reveal to us that good city that we can place our hopes in. If we had a mind to go back to the cities we came from, we could go. But you have something better in store. Help us take our place with the heroes of faith in Hebrews 11. Help us to continue forward, trusting you, believing in you. Let that new wine flow in our veins, Lord Jesus. Help us to celebrate what we have in you. I pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
Amen, Lord. That's what we long for, Lord, for a fresh wind of your spirit. Father, I just pray for every person here who desires that, who longs for that. The the new wine of your spirit moving in our lives, shaking us from the drudgery, elevating our perspective to see beyond the the brokenness of this place to the glory that will be revealed in you. I pray for each one of us here, Father, that desires that. Holy Spirit, come. Fill us up, Lord Jesus. We submit to you. We long for you. Fill our hearts. Fill our lives. Fill our thinking as we go throughout this week. Encourage and comfort and sustain. Provide the strength that's needed to continue on in this journey as we follow you, Father. Come and fill us up and pour your Spirit out on us. We pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus, Lord, believing, believing that you will. Amen. Amen. Let's, uh, if you need prayer for anything, feel free to come on up uh, as we're closing here and we'll pray with you and see what God will do. Um, Take this with you through the week. Contemplate on these things. I know we come here and we read this stuff, and yeah, this is fun. But but let's allow ourselves to be saturated in this. Take this. Go back. Read it again. Think about it. See how the Holy Spirit will move in your heart and your life. This is important stuff. I, I, you know, I'm, This is not to aggrandize anything, but I felt strongly from the Lord as we began the, the, the series in the Gospel of John. He wants to communicate something. There's something going on with this. So let's, let's, let's pause on these things. Let's not just race in and race out and get back to life. Let's, let's hang on these things for a while and allow Jesus to communicate and shape us. Okay, second sermon, Rob? No. What, this is my fifth closing now. So we'll, let's, uh, let's speak this blessing. May Christ be a light to illumine and guide you. Christ be a shield to overshadow you. Christ be under you, Christ be over you, Christ beside you, on your left and on your right, both in this world and the one to come. Go in peace, you children of God.